0: You're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Manap Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And good evening, Rabbi Hirsch, welcome back. The commemorative episode that we did for the Queen was very, very much appreciated. I just want to let you know. Many people have written in to thank us, and we've had thousands and thousands of downloads since Wednesday morning. So thank you again for doing the research and looking into it like you did. Just before we start, I want to mention that we left off about the story with the shots of rubber.
1: We will deal with that at We the will. End. I don't want you yes. to forget about it. No. <laughs>
0: Okay, so we are going to start a four-part series on printing now and the problems that printing had over the centuries.
1: Yes, we'll deal with four different centuries and stories. We do, however, need to briefly go back to the podcast about The Queen. You mentioned that you asked a story about Princess Elizabeth and the blessing from the Schotze and at length that will be dealt with at the end of today's podcast.
0: With a conclusion, I hope. With
1: a conclusion, well, sort of, (laughs) sort of. But I would immediately like to redress being amiss because I neglected to mention last week that many of the facts about uh, the story of Queen Juliana were given to me by Amos Wittenberg, although he didn't feel it necessary to have his name mentioned. Nevertheless, credit where credit is due. Okay, on to printing. Printing changes the world. In many ways, it makes study open to all. It's cheaper, more available, faster. In our days, we can actually understand many of those types of changes because the changes from manuscripts, which were handwritten, to printing is mirrored by the change from print to digital online it has many of the same outcomes and therefore many of the same ch- same challenges you know what to print how to edit how to ensure accuracy fake news obviously an upside to printing is uh, the fact that we are bringing information to the masses uh, but there are downsides dangers and we will discuss them next week it's interesting that even for the printers themselves there were significant challenges. Congratulations, Mr. Gutenberg. You've printed 200 copies of the Bible, and there are about three people in your town who can read it in Latin. So what are you going to do with the other <laughs> 197 copies? Which is why Gutenberg died a pauper.
0: So you're saying that printing creates the need for, suddenly for marketing, advertising, all these new concepts.
1: Yep. Now... Printing, we know, was in full flow by the mid-1500s across Europe. It starts for the Jews in Italy and Spain. The first dated Hebrew book to be printed was Rashi's Commentary in February 1475. Within a decade, the first Gemara Brochus, was printed in the northern Italian town of Sonsino. It spreads to Turkey Um, North of the Alps into Poland, Prague, Germany. And we also know that the church and Christians were involved in this printing, generally in a negative way. Censorship, bans, uh, book seizures, book burning. But they were uninvolved in the profit cycle, buying and selling, which makes it all the more unusual as to why the King of Poland in the mid-1500s suddenly decides that his Jewish subjects need to buy an entire inventory of thousands of Swarim, including Sidurim Chomoshim. I mean, why would he tell them? and Why would they need encouragement? So, w- this is a bizarre episode of Hebrew printing for which we need to move to 16th century Krakow mm. and introduce the first Jewish printers in Poland, Samuel, Asher, and Eliakim Helish. The Hellish brothers began to print in Krakow in 1534, well, I mean, technically in Kazimierz, today it's a suburb of Krakow, back then it was its own town. And within a year, they had produced five works. All are first editions. They'd never been printed before. Four of them, in fact, were the first Yiddish books ever printed. Now, Hebrew type had appeared in printed books in Krakow before these brothers came onto the scene from Christian printers. There was a a Latin version of Tehillim, which had some Hebrew, but they are the first to print books for the Jews in Poland, which, as we will see, contains a rather large dose of irony. Their first sefer is the Shari Dura. It's a 13th century German rishain who writes a guide to the laws of kashrus, which will be cited by the Ramah in Shulchan in later years. And, in fact, in the pre-Shulchan Aruch age, before the Code of Jewish Law was printed, it was pretty extensively was used. Why,
0: why did they pick that one? Surely there were a lot of others for them that they would have been more popularly received. It's a practical book. In fact, all the books produced by them
1: were modest, I would say, in both length and price, which suggests that they were not particularly well-funded. So they publish previously unpublished works so there's no competition they went for practical works like halacha and in the vernacular and they also print short works, so it limits labor outlay you know if you compare this to the four non-jewish major printers in Krakow at the time very different even if you compare it to Jewish printers in Prague at the time on Venice there, the first works are the Tanakh, uh, Hebrew woodcuts, uh, hundreds of pages long, so they are working for the practical market. But after a printing flurry in 1535, their press fell silent. It returns three years later, and now they publish classic works and, you know, more substantial rabbinic works in quick succession. But it's no longer Shmuel, Usher, and Eliokum Hellish who return to the Hebrew publishing business in Krakow in 1538. It's Paul, Andreas, and Johannes. They have now become Christians. In February 1537, the three of them and their sister and, in fact, other family members converted, and they they will print a book in Breslau in 1537 of Wroclaw today, which says printed by converts and names them. Now, Professor Mare Balaban, who is possibly the uh, greatest chronicler of Polish Jewry, he links their apostasy to the persecution of Jews in Krakow in 1539, which was led by a bishop. And they do dedicate a book to this bishop, But he only arrived on the scene in July 1538. And therefore, looking at the existing evidence, it suggests that the story of their conversion may not be the result of Christian pressures on Jews, but the winds of change in 16th century publishing.
0: Did they believe in Christianity or do you think maybe they didn't?
1: It's not easy to figure out. Um, The evidence tells us as follows. On the one hand, they printed the anti-Jewish work called the Epistle of Reb Samuel of Morocco, which you can still download today, and which was supposedly written by an ex-rabbi who saw the light of Christianity. He wrote this in Arabic although it was actually written by the Dominican church because they wanted to convince Jews with proofs from within their own faith. And in fact, this book becomes part of Luther's library in 1524 in German. So they create a Yiddish translation, which must have taken quite some time, and that's therefore quite a religious commitment. And in fact, one of the three brothers, now Paul, uh, according to a report written uh, from a non-Jewish source in Poznan in March 1537, brought um, it's either 13 or 14 Jewish men, women, and children to baptism. So there is very much a commitment. On the other hand, conversion clearly had its financial upside. Paul and Andreas appear in front of the Poznan City Council, asking for the promised payment per person who converted. And on the day that he was involved in helping these Jews to convert, the brothers are given a monopoly on the importing and sale of Hebrew books in Poland by King Sigismund I. About three months later, in June, the king absolved the brothers from any financial obligations that they had entered into as Jews which they had not yet paid for so all of this suggests that it wasn't the newfound belief alone that led them to convert It's difficult to know absolutely though so now they've got a new financial lease on life the printing house was resurrected if you pardon the pun <laughs> and as Jews the brothers had printed small popular works, as we mentioned, but as Christians they publish substantial volumes aimed at a different audience. So Yiddish works of the masses disappeared and they're replaced by rabbinic titles such as were printed in Venice. And they print the first two parts of the tour in 1538-1539, which is over 500 pages long. And then Johannes publishes a seven-page Truva responsum, of Reb Shalom Shachna of Lublin, who is the teacher and the father-in-law of the Rama, who was buried in Lublin. His cave is still there. And the brothers, beyond uh, funding, they have now access to better sources of printing material, which would never be sold to Jews. They were able to buy paper with watermarks. Um, but That perhaps was a miscalculation uh, because the watermark had two Christian crosses throughout. Um, We've still got pages of these for from the print house today. And they had new sources of capital. But even with all these advantages and everybody uh, in the Christian world uh, rooting for them, the press founded for one very simple reason, the Jews. They refused to buy these swarim. In July 1539, two Christians, a book dealer and a book binder, testify in a Krakow court that local Jews had told them that no Jew would buy the Hebrew books in their possession. And not only wouldn't they buy them, but they'd burn them if they found them in the possession of another Jew. So now these brothers, they've laid out money for paper, ink, labor, storage, I think they created their own fonts. All of this is new in the early age of printing. They're now stuck. They're struggling to sell their stock of books. So the first thing they do is they resort to deception. You find the front page of a book of Slichus, which records that it was published in the Holy Community of Krakow in the year 5192, which is 1532. In other words, prior to their conversion when it wasn't. But this way, you know, Jews will still buy it. It didn't work.
0: I mean, we we do find that rabbis bought foreign printed by Christians. Um, To the best of my collection, the first Talmud was published by a Christian, no?
1: First of all, Talmud, yes, was. This is not the same. This is a Jew who became an apostate.
0: And halachically, there's a
1: difference? Very much so. I mean, let's look at the halachic issue for a moment. The Gemara in Gittin rules that if a heretic writes a Sefer Torah, it needs to be burnt. And even though that's an exceptional activity, uh, because simply, according to most opinions, if a Sefer Torah is written where the name of God has got no intent of kadusha, of holiness, it's simply invalid. But we have a similar type of ruling with other Sephardim. It's forbidden to learn from these works you have in the 20th century. So the Tzitz writes that the concern is perhaps these forum you can't trust the, the, the writers and the printers. Uh, maybe something was added, subtracted. The Mincha Sietzchok also writes about it, the Shevet Halevi. It's probably the Ramosha Feinstein who has the clearest responsum on the matter. And he isn't even dealing with the more severe scenario of an apostate, but rather with Sidurim and Svarim that were printed on Shabbos. But he's very unequivocal on the matter. He writes, you know, in a poshut it is obvious that since a great sin has been committed in the production of these books, in other words, the public desecration of Shabbos, even if the actual work was performed by non-Jews, but under the orders of the Jewish owner, they are, he writes, M'usim lidvar mitzvah." they are objectionable, distasteful
0: to be used for an item of a mitzvah. It sounds like it's a mitzvah bar bavera, a mitzvah um, that came about as a result of sin. He even writes, it's possible that a person has not
1: fulfilled the requirement of prayer at all by using them. Wow. No. Because an apostate is not, you know, going back to that, is not simply somebody who has given in to their desires or turned away from religious practice. It's somebody who's spat in the face of Judaism. They've turned their back on God.
0: So the printing press was pretty much
1: stuck. Yes, these brothers are stuck, and Paul realized what would happen to their finances. So in 1539, he approaches the king for help. Uh, To undo their
0: conversion. (laughs)
1: No, the opposite, to confirm it as a Christian that he should help them out. And on December 31st, 1539, the king issued a decree forcing the Jewish communities of Krakow and Poznan and what was called then Russia, in other words, Lvov, to buy all of the remaining inventory of any Hebrew books held by Paul, Andreas and Johannes Hellish. The king's demand was pretty significant. They had, and I uh, quote, 800 machzorim, 850 copies of slichus, 500 copies of the Torah, 400 yetzerus, 200 copies of a book of customs of minhagim, 300 chumashim, 300 sidurim, and more than 500 others, almost 4,000 books. We're talking the 1530s here. Right. This is back in the day where, you know, nobody owns their own set of anything. And he demanded that the communities make, uh, you know, an immediate payment of 600 florins by January 1st, the next day, and another 600 florins a year later, and another 400 by January 1st, 1542. It's a bizarre story. So they have to buy these books, which, by the way, they will then not use. Right. It's simply money down a drain. You would have to bin them, yep. not not put in us. Yep, Just... yeah, yep. So the printing house now has a new lease of life, but the brothers had learned their lesson, and from now on they print Christian works. They also print missionary tracts in Yiddish or in Hebrew, using Hebrew characters. They translate the quote-unquote New Testament into Yiddish with an introduction about how Jews are blind to the true faith, And it's dedicated to the Bishop of Krakow. Now, you know, what's the likelihood that the Jews are going to buy his translation of a Christian work when they wouldn't even touch his swarim? Probably low, but it kept the bishop happy. And they produce a book with Hebrew letters to teach people grammatria, teach Christians grammatria, and a few basic texts in Yiddish, including the Lord's Prayer, which I'm sure went down the storm. Now, one of the brothers appears to have given up printing, uh, at least as a name publisher, although he carries on living in Krakow. But this is not the end of a bizarre tale, because in 1551, it's about a decade later, a printer in Constantinople began to publish a version of the Tznach with Rashi's commentary. And the publisher wrote on the title page, "Shmuel said, Do not call me Shmuel, but rather Shavuel, who has returned to God. And he continues that after my return to Judaism, I considered what I should do. And I said, printing the Tanakh will release me from my former deeds. This printer is Shmuel Hellish, Being a Christian obviously didn't suit him. He left the Christian world, both spiritually and physically, because he travels to Istanbul, a Muslim enclave to quite some degree. And there he publishes three Jewish works, including the Humish, the Shari Dura, the very first work that he and his brothers had published 20 years earlier in Krakow. And he lives there, lives out his years there in, in Constantinople.
0: Incredible. So in the years of old, you're saying Jews sometimes escape debt through conversion.
1: So listen, it's, it's an age before, you know, limited liability of companies. <laughs> yeah. So if you fail in business, you have full personal responsibility for the debts. If you couldn't pay, you could end up in a debtor's prison and conversion would bring short term relief probably not long-term, even possibly, so to speak, physically, physically or financially, but definitely not spiritually, obviously. There is an academic article on this episode written by Professors Fram and Tita, if anyone wants further research written approximately 15 years ago. I'm
0: sure the requests will be flooding in. <laughs> um, you mentioned the printing in Yiddish before. I'm guessing that was the main language spoken by the Jews in Europe at the time. So would printing in Yiddish have been the standard then, seeing that that was the most commonplace, acceptable language?
1: So we need to ask ourselves when. In other words, Yiddish as a language is born sometime in the early Middle Ages. And for centuries, it was basically a spoken language. The first trace that I'm aware of, of written Yiddish is in the famous Mahsa or Vorms, so we're talking the 1200s, and there's a line there dedicated to the porter who carries the Machza from its owner's home to shul. And this language subsequently becomes known as Alt Yiddish, Old Yiddish. Then it changes, Middle Yiddish comes into being, literally Middle Yiddish, between 1500 to 1700s. In fact, starting at around that time, the mid 16th century, there is an increasing amount of Yiddish dialects, particularly the distinction between Western and Eastern Yiddish. You know, people might assume it's the difference between Hasidish and Litvish Yiddish. Clearly, none of those exist at the time. This is between the West and the East, what's called Meir of Yiddish and Mizrach Yiddish. Germany, Alsace, Holland, Northern Germany, which is where most of Yiddish printing happens, particularly Amsterdam. They have one, versus Bohemia, Moravia, Ukraine, and even Israel, where it was spoken by the Ashkenazi community of uh, Jerusalem. and they are different. Rubiak of Emden explains a little bit later that the members of the uh, communities of Hamburg, Antona and Vansbek wanted to hire a rabbi from Lithuania, but they had to abandon the idea because they had difficulty understanding what he was saying. But at that stage, they start printing in Yiddish with difficulty. You find in the adaptation of a storybook, the Shaina uh, Artliche Geschichten, which is edited in 1710, that says it's impossible for me to make the Yiddish clear enough for everybody, because every country has its own Yiddish. So I ask the reader to excuse me if the language occasionally is inelegant, uh, but I've put it in as much a way that everybody can understand it. And finally, therefore, there's an attempt at standardizing printed Yiddish, which now becomes nigh Yiddish, modern Yiddish, which has got rules. And although we take it for granted, it's actually quite astonishing. It's a spoken language which develops in foreign countries into a written language where you don't have, so to speak, the power of the state or the church. In other words, you couldn't use the country's network to get it out there. And yet it ends up with rules and grammar and. Um, and, in fact, nearly all Yiddish works published in the 16th, 17th centuries have a special type font for Yiddish. So you differentiate between Yiddish no. and Hebrew. Yeah. I,
0: it's most similar to, German. No. It's yeah. similar to German.
1: Yes, I mean, the majority of it is based on German, but there are lots of imported words from So Parish, the Yiddish we Russian, speak today is what you just
0: English mentioned? You it's... Uh, nothing it, nothing like...
1: It, it. It's a hybrid. It's it, everything that has come about through Eastern Europe, primarily that way. Western European German basically uh, comes to an end.
0: Right. So the original in the 1200s, it's a far cry from that.
1: I can't say a far cry, but there are definitely a lot of imported words which didn't exist back then. Mm. Now, you know, you've always got anomalies. The newspaper that spells Stamford Hill with two Lumberds in the word hill because there are two L's in the word hill. But one has nothing to do with the other necessarily, you know. And in the Hebrew lettering, you've got ayin, you've got aleph. You can write a word with that, or with the other, or just miss out both letters. But somehow they made rules. Although in halacha, these are codified for Gitin, You've got Yiddish names in divorce documents, but that, you know, names and places only. What does change? What does happen? In printing in the 18th and 19th century is the groundwork for the reception of the ideas of Haskalah, with Yiddish adaptations of European secular works. You have got the things like the Beschreibung des Lebens von Robinson-Crisot. Right Robertson Crusoe, which <laughs> is already published in Metz in seventeen sixty four, But that type of work is not going to propel people into the arms of secular Judaism. But more dangerous works were being translated, whether of a romantic nature or philosophical, and the ideas of Haskalah were driven through the use of Yiddish and of printed texts. They were the main ones to capitalise on the use of use of the printed words. And at a later stage, uh, you will see that secular Judaism tried to hijack the grammar. They stopped using the final letters. They gave a new pronunciation to standard Hebrew words in Yiddish. And it's part of a a culture war. But some other time.
0: I was going to ask earlier, was there not a big controversy when printing started? I'm sure people predicted that for the first time anyone can write anything and claim it was the beginning of fake news.
1: We will deal with that next week. Yes. Okay.
0: One task as well which swarm were chosen to be printed in Yiddish and which in Hebrew?
1: The introduction to the forewords to older Yiddish printed books has declarations, uh, announcements that this book in Yiddish is therefore for women. But what they're really saying is buy this book, it's for regular people like you and me who like to read as opposed to the great rabbis. You know, you have the book, uh, one of the earliest books, Sefer Midas, which is the first ever which has got published rules of Yiddish spelling. And the uh, front of the book makes it clear in big letters that it's a book for women. But it's clearly an excuse to be allowed to publish in Yiddish because Yiddish is new at the time. So maybe it's forbidden to publish Jewish stuff in Yiddish and now it's fine because it you know it's for the viber it's for the women but the makers of the book proceed in their book to talk about it being produced for women on the front page to in the preface saying it's produced for whoever and then later they talk about it being produced for every man hmm. so it becomes widely read although some works were printed specifically for women
0: even as early as the 1500s
1: yes Okay, but before we close for today, let's go back to the story of the Schotzer Rebbe. So, in brief, the follow-up from your question you sent me by text was the claim that in 1938, the Schotzer Rebbe, along with the chief rabbi, had an audience with King George VI, at which the king told them that Princess Elizabeth was very unwell, and the Rebbe gave her her bracha, that she would recover and live a long life on condition that the King would guarantee legislation for the kinder transport for bringing Jewish children to
0: Britain, okay. this is a snippet of a newspaper
1: yes no it's in the, well it's in the entire article of that newspaper right. yeah so let's analyze this firstly, why would these two people be the delegation? The Shozereber was very highly regarded, but we don't know his involvement in bringing over refugees on a committee level bearing in mind he was from Romania. The kinder transports didn't come from Eastern Europe. And the rescue of Jews had been going on for months by then, ever since the Evian conference in June 38. If anyone, why not take Rabbi Schonfeld to see the king? Because the Schotzer ever didn't speak English. We assume that the chief rabbi probably didn't speak Yiddish, might have spoken German. I mean, he wasn't an Eastern European émigré, really. And Rabbi Schomfeld was very familiar with the entire refugee story. He'd been bringing people across, working under the chief rabbi, bringing Rabonim in particular. And he was chosen for his abilities rather than any family connection because he wasn't yet the son-in-law of Rabbi Hertz. So how likely is it that the would was have suggested himself and that it would have been just those two? But yeah. maybe... Yes. Oh, he could have maybe. taken matters okay. in his own hands. No problem. Fine. OK. <laughs> the bigger problem is that the refugee kinder transport issue was actually settled very quickly in Britain and didn't need any intervention. Kristallnacht is the night of the 9th, 10th November. By the 14th of November, six Jews had already met with the Prime Minister Rothschild, Weizmann, Lord Samuel, Lord Beersted, the Chief Rabbi, and Neville Nasky. And they asked him to bring unaccompanied minors to Britain without the need for German travel documents and British visas. Now, Chamberlain, the Prime Minister, wasn't keen. His Home Secretary, who was a Quaker, was very keen. He raised it in the Cabinet a few days later, where Lord Halifax, the Foreign Secretary, backed it, not because of the Jews, but because he believed that this positive action would bring America on board as allies against the Nazis. By On, rather than by, the 21st of November, the issue is raised and concluded in Parliament. That means the whole thing was sorted in 10 days, before it developed into a crisis or, I don't know, got bogged down in red tape and needed pushing, and it's quite clear that Parliament... Within the confines of the House of Commons are the ones who made it happen. And they only allowed it to happen because the Jewish community accepted the burden of
0: care of payment. Yeah, but it only got accepted in 10 days because of the Schotzer involvement, possibly.
1: Okay, right. So (laughs) why would he have felt he needed to get involved when there wasn't a crisis yet? OK, y- you find, I mean, you can look this up online, 9.35 p.m. on the 21st of November, the Home Secretary confirms that uh, with the promise of the Jewish community providing funds, the Home Office would waive visas. And less than two weeks later, on the 2nd of December, the first trainload of 200 Jews arrive. Rabbi Schomfeld's first kinder transport left Vienna, I think it was, on the 11th of December. So why intervene? You have another big question. I haven't finished. (laughs) Why would they have gone to the king? How would he have had the ability to influence matters beyond the fact that there's no mention during this entire debate in parliament
0: about the king's views? That's the question I had, especially that everyone's talking about how little relevance. I mean, the queen, that's what we spoke about last week. Right.
1: He could not guarantee the passage of any law. Since the First World War, the monarchy has had very little say in creating law. They can delay Parliament, uh, but beyond that. And anyway, how would he have gotten the audience so quickly? These were very tempestuous times in Britain, uh, the Anschluss appeasement, and it all has to have happened in a very, very short amount of time. So it's pretty unlikely. Not finished yet. Then there is the issue that it doesn't appear in any biography. I have access to an online library. I downloaded two biographies of George VI, which deal with the years 36 to 39. And there's not a mention, not of his intervention, which would probably have been his writing, nor of his daughter's illness. And there is plenty going on in his life with his brother and dealing with making sure he doesn't come back to England. There's not happening. I also have two books on the princess before she was queen. One of them is written by a woman who was a nanny for Princess Elizabeth for 15 years. It's detailed and the idea that she would have missed out this almost fatal illness is extremely unlikely. So, you know, maybe they hid her ill health from the public but if the king was worried about it, it would have been known within the corridors of Buckingham Palace and years later when history was written, they would have mentioned it. Beyond that, it's not mentioned in any of the books that I have seen this week on the transport. None of them mention the king. So I think it's pretty clear that Princess Elizabeth was never deathly ill or extremely ill in 1938. Now, can I tell you with absolute certainty that the story never happened? No. But in order for it to have happened, every writer that I've come across on the subject's of Elizabeth or George the Sixth or the Kinder Transport would have to have conspired to an oath of secrecy about two things. First of all, that she was ill, and secondly, that it was George the Sixth that made the kinder transport happened, or he leaned heavily on the Prime Minister to do so.
0: And only that Yiddish newspaper would have access to those <laughs> right. to those secrets. Right. So maybe, I I mean, it could be another occasion, maybe a different member of the royal family.
1: Yeah, I am not saying that it was uh, beyond the the, the realms of possibility that an occasion took place where the Shatzarebbe gave a bracha and it it was life-changing, but not here. One last thing. The views of George VI regarding the Jews, generally foreign Jews especially. The Guardian in 2002, Guardian Newspaper. Right. In the spring of 1939, George VI instructed his private secretary to write to the foreign secretary, having learnt that a number of Jewish refugees from different countries were surreptitiously getting into Palestine. The king wrote that he was glad to think that steps are being taken to prevent these people leaving their country of origin. And Halifax, the foreign minister telegraphed Britain's ambassador in Berlin, asking him to encourage the German government to check the emigration of Jews to Palestine. As they say, when it came to anti-Semitism, George VI didn't stutter. And the famous uh, King George in Jerusalem is named after King George V. Not King George
0: (laughs) VI. The final nail in the coffin. (laughs)
1: Right. So beyond the conspiracy of silence in all biographies, the inability of the king to make this legislation happen, the possible language barrier, the king's views on foreign Jews... There is the time factor, which is that within 10 days of Kristallnacht, Parliament had okayed it, and therefore intervention wasn't really needed. Find me written evidence otherwise from a reliable source, which it's it's got to be at least 30 years old, uh, before the time that people write stories, you know, books full of stories with uh, printer deadlines – and I am happy to be proven wrong. Listen, it's a fabulous story.
0: I love to be wrong. I'm getting deja vu from our Golem episodes where right. you pretty much proved beyond a shadow of a doubt you didn't exist, but you still left the caveat of it it's being possible. Possible. Yeah.
1: Now, I would like to close by saying that um, we don't know who you necessarily are, our loyal listeners. The only thing we do know is which country you are from. And at this point, I'd like to mention that consistently... The fourth largest audience after the sort of the three obvious ones of the USA, UK and Israel is Germany, or more precisely Berlin. Pretty small community, but very clearly on the map. So yeah. thank you. And next day, week we will deal with mistakes in printing, both deliberate and otherwise, and the disadvantages of print that you mentioned earlier.
0: Thank you very, very much. Another fascinating episode, a great start to a new season. And as you can see, the amount of research Rabbi Hirsch puts in to prove that all these fantastic stories are untrue. It is worth writing in your questions. I'm sure Rabbi Hirsch will be delighted to delve into another popular myth (laughs) and show that it was untrue. Um, but please keep sending in your feedback, reviews. We very much enjoy reading them to podcasts at jle.org.uk. We've been receiving a lot of interest for the Prague trip, Rabbi Hirsch, that you spoke yes. about. So 3rd to 6th November. Yes. There are still some spaces left. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. We'll see you for episode two next week.